Tara Blankenship. And this morning I'm going to be reading from Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you now, I ask that you would do a work through your word in conquering and capturing our hearts. Lord, may we push out all that would distract us, and may we focus the eyes of faith upon a king who is upon his throne, who is ruling and reigning over all things. All the chaos around us must bend its knee to the Lord Jesus. May we see that clearly and rejoice in it this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since it is a beautiful chaos Sunday, fifth Sunday, comes around once a quarter, our kids are all here with us. I want to say two things up front. First, parents, this will be a shorter sermon. Amen. Second, kids, this sermon isn't just for your parents. This is for you. Everything I'm saying right now is for you, kids. Uh, yes, I'm talking to the adults this morning, but I'm also talking to you. And kids, pay attention because I might call you out by name. Noah, right? I might call you out by name. I'm looking around. Uh, yes, I see some more in the back, back here. I might call you out by name. Uh, Rain, where are you? I might call you out by name. Kids, I, I do want to say to you, first of all, well done on the songs this morning. Victoria, our children's minister, has told me that each unit the children are finishing has a song that expresses what they've learned. So we can look forward on fifth Sundays for them sharing with us more songs in the, you know, every quarter to come. It was a good start today, kids. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you have to share next. Let me ask you kids, ask you adults as well, show of hands, how many of you kids, how many of you adults have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia? Raise your hand. Okay, kids, if you have never heard these stories, you have my permission to pester your parents until they read them to you. Just ask, can you read me the story that Pastor KJ was talking about, please? Always put the please in there, kids. Daddy, can you read it and do the voices, please? And dads, you don't have to do good voices. They're probably more funny and more memorable if the voices are bad. That they're awful. So don't worry about it. it. It doesn't have to be great, but you need to read to your kids the Chronicles of Narnia at some point. Or else get an audiobook from the library and just listen to it with them at bedtime. Just do it. Do it. Just do it. Because both as kids and as adults, you need to know about the Pevensies. The Pevensies. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the Pevensey family consisted of four kids. Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy. Together, these kids step through a wardrobe and are transported into a magical country called Narnia. There, they meet Aslan, 
the kingly, Christ-like lion. And they fight against the white witch, who makes it always winter, but never Christmas in Narnia. I won't tell you how all the story goes, but the four Pevensey kids eventually become kings and queens of Narnia. They become real royalty in this magical country. They rule over a kingdom under Aslan and live out full and long lives there. But eventually, as adults, they manage to fall back through the wardrobe, returning to our world as children again. Outwardly, they look exactly the same as when they first left, wearing the same clothes and everything. Outwardly, it's as though nothing had changed, but inwardly, everything had changed. Their identity had been changed. They can't forget who they are, that they are now kings and queens of another country. They look just like average children. You pass them on the street, you meet them at school, and you wouldn't think that anything was special about them. But they don't act like average children. They stand up to bullies, and they defend the helpless, and they carry themselves differently because they know who they really are. Ezra, they know who they really are. They know they're actually kings and queens in a magical country. This royal identity now shapes how they live in the real world. It's an identity that they can't prove to anyone. They can't take anyone back to Narnia and show off their crowns. They can't prove to anyone that Narnia exists any more than you can prove to someone that heaven exists. All they can do is demonstrate it's real, is to live out their new identities before people. The proof is found in their changed lives. The Pevensies have a new identity that has captured their hearts and changed the way they interact with the world. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that the same thing that happened to the Pevensies has happened to us. We've had our identity changed through an encounter with a king whose kingdom is of another realm. We were also just average kids, just average sinners, just selfish brats. But through an encounter with the king, we've been adopted into heaven's royal family. We've been made co-heirs with Christ. We've been made to inherit an unshakable kingdom in a world that will feel absolutely magical compared to this one. And so, like the Pevensies, we also ought to live differently in this world. We're called to live out our new identity, to stand up to evil, to push back the darkness, to share the good news of God's coming kingdom with others. It's natural for us to do these things as long as we remember who we really are. As long as we remember we are sons and daughters of light. As long as we remember that we are ambassadors for Christ, that we are exiles here, not natives. If we forget who we are, we'll also forget what we are to be doing. If we lose our grip on our new identity, we will revert back to our old identities. We'll simply act like everyone else around us. If we don't see the world any differently than they do, we'll just act like them. If we don't see ourselves any differently than they do, 
The Apostle Paul knows this is a danger. It's a real danger. He knows that we are monumental forgetters. We are so quick to forget who we really are and how completely changed Jesus has made our identity. He's completely changed us. So, Paul pleads in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, for us to remember who we are and what Christ has done for us. We've got to remember and believe it if we are to be changed. Like the Pevensies' life-changing experiences in Narnia, we've got to remember and believe in life-changing realities that our physical eyes can't see or show to others. Life-changing realities like heaven and Christ's rule and Jesus' resurrected power. Realities that Paul refers to in Colossians as the things above. you got to set your eyes, set your mind on the things above. These are life-changing realities that we grasp not by sight, but by faith. They're life-changing realities that we can't see with our eyes, but we can embrace with our hearts, with our lives. Your eyes can't see the things above, but our, your mind, nevertheless, can be captivated by them. God has given us all this capacity. God's created us with the capacity to set our minds on the things above without having to set our eyes on them. And I bet you that our kids here can tell us how. I bet you the kids in the room already know how this works. Kids, if you can't see something but want to act like it's there, what do you do? What do you use? I heard it. Yes. Your imagination. You're right. Your imagination. Kids do this all the time. You can't see what's on the other side of that fence, but you can imagine what's there. You don't know what's up the attic stairs, but you can visualize in your mind what it could be. God designed us, designed into us from childhood the capacity to imagine realities beyond what we can see. We can't see it, but God has given us the ability to imagine it. A man had to imagine the first steam engine before one was ever built. We imagine what we cannot see, and we imagine in order for others to see. If Walt Disney hadn't imagined Mickey Mouse, no other eyes would have ever seen him. And most all of our childhoods have been touched to some extent by the imagination of Walt Disney. Our libraries would have almost no books if it wasn't for the gift of imagination. Now, you might think many boring scientific books would still be there. But more science than you realize relies on the human imagination. You may think you know what a hydrogen atom looks like, but you've never actually seen one. No one really has. But we've imagined what a single atom of hydrogen looks like. We have a God-given capacity to imagine things that we cannot see. The human imagination, therefore, is a gift, is a great gift from God. 
we should be far more thankful for it than we are. I would say that the imagination is part of the image of God on us. God imagined a world, kids. God imagined a world and populated it with life and people and stories. A human author, in writing a story, does something very similar. C.S. Lewis, when he imagines Narnia and populates it with fawns and dwarves and a story of redemption, Lewis is doing something very godlike. He's reflecting the image of God. He, his imagination shines like a dim reflection of God's great imagination. Kids, when you make up stories, when you send your little Lego figures off to have adventures, you are showing that the image of God has been stamped upon you. We all have in us from our earliest childhood memories the God-given capacity to see beyond what is there in front of us. We can visualize things that we have never seen. We need this God-given capacity when we come to a passage like Colossians chapter 3. Here, we are forced to, the, to turn to the imagination when we hear a command like this, verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 1 calls us to imagine realities that our eyes have never seen. You didn't see Jesus resurrected, but Paul calls you here to imagine his resurrection, to imagine it and to see yourself in a real sense as a participant in the resurrection, that you in Christ have been raised up. You weren't there at the resurrection, but you have the capacity to imagine it. You also weren't there with the 500-odd folks who witnessed the ascension, but you're called here to imagine it, to visualize a king who ascends above and is seated at God's right hand. No human eye has seen Jesus seated on his heavenly throne, but we are all called to imagine it. We're all called to have our imaginations so captivated by it that we live differently in the here and now. Like the Pevensies, believing that they're real kings and queens, they live differently because of it. We're called to imagine Jesus seated on his throne and live differently because he is there. The Bible is calling us to embrace what I call a sanctified imagination. Sanctified imagination. Now, we all know that our imaginations can be twisted and can be bent by sin. We can imagine horrible things that will never happen. We can imagine selfish things, selfish scenarios that put us at the center of everything. Here, Paul calls us to have our imaginations washed clean. To have our imaginations redeemed back to their original purpose. To have them fixed upon heavenly realities that we cannot see. So, this morning, I call all of us, both young and old, kids, senior adults, all of us, to use our imaginations. 
to have our imaginations captured by five massive realities. Captured by five massive realities we see in these four short verses. Because if these five realities can be captured by our imaginations, can capture our imaginations so completely, I think, and when we think about them every day, throughout the day, I am sure it will change our lives. It must change our lives. Kids, you'll find that these realities are more life-changing than being transported through a wardrobe to a magical country. And all of these are true. These five realities are greater than what the Pevensey kids experienced. If you're taking notes this morning, let me give you a challenge. Write down these five truths and put them somewhere to look at every day this week. Kids, you can do this too. Write these five truths down and work a little more each day at having them capture your imagination. And just see what kind of impact it has on your week. I hope you have your your pens ready because I'm going to move quickly from this point on, just unpacking these truths. The first truth is this. It's found in verse 1. Capture your imagination with this truth. You have been raised up with Christ, verse 1. You have been raised up with Christ. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Let this capture your imagination. You have been united to Christ in his resurrection. As he was raised from the dead physically, you have been raised from the dead spiritually. This is what your baptism was meant to picture, being raised up with Christ, united with him in the power of his resurrected life. Death now holds no sting for you. Death has been transformed from utter loss into your greatest gain. Its tragedy has been removed. Jesus' past victory over death secures your future victory over death. Death like the abominable snowman in uh, Rudolph has had all of his teeth pulled out. And as a result of you being raised with Christ, death has no sting, has no bite anymore. And Christ being raised up in the resurrection isn't the end of him being raised up. It is only the start. Jesus also ascended to take his rightful place, to sit at the Father's right hand, to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to sit upon the throne of the universe. Let this capture your imagination today and every day. You have a real connection with this King. A real connection. Believer, You married him. You married him. You are the bride of Christ. You were an unattractive commoner, but you married into heaven's royal family. You were a rebel against the king, but full of love and grace, the king pardoned you and adopted you into his family. You've become something better than kings and queens of Narnia, You've joined yourself to heaven's royal family. Therefore, in love and gratitude, seek the things above. Seek first Christ's kingdom and righteousness. That's the first truth from verse 1. You've been raised up with Christ. Here's the second truth. Also verse 1. You live in full view of Christ's throne. 
you now live in full view of Christ's throne. Again, verse 1, you've been raised up with him, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you didn't know it already, to sit at God the Father's right hand is to sit upon a throne. Jesus sits at God's right hand upon the throne of the universe. And guess what? You live in full view of this throne. You can't see Jesus from your vantage point, but he ever lives to see you. From this throne, Christ rules over all things. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, Jesus says. Christ rules over you, and amazingly, he ever lives to intercede for you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Jesus is heaven's king, but he is also heaven's high priest. He both rules over us and he intercedes for us. I've told you before about how the Latin believers used to greet one another in Latin. What is it, Aaron? Karam Deo, right? Karam Deo, before the face of God. Walk before the face of God. These early believers were continually calling each other to have their imaginations captured by this reality. You live in full view of Christ's throne. You live every day and every moment of the day before the face of the king. Therefore, dance like no one's watching. No, just kidding. Dance like he is watching. If all of life is a stage, act like Christ is the only one seated in the audience. He is your primary audience. You might think imagining him always watching would give you stage fright, but remember this, Jesus knows better than anyone else that we are not performing in order to save ourselves. He has already done that. He's already done the saving fully, freely. We are simply called to live before his face with joy and overflowing with gratitude for what he has done for us. That's the second truth. Here's the third one. Your true home is with Christ, not here. Your true home is with Christ, not here. Verse two, therefore, set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth, not the things that are here, where others give their, all their minds and imagination to this world because it's their home. You're called to have all your imagination captured by another world because that world is your real home. You're just a pilgrim here. You're just passing through. Pilgrims don't weigh themselves down collecting all the trash and junk on the side of the road because they're on their way to their real home. They're on their way to a better country. You're a pilgrim here, Christian. Adopt a pilgrim's mindset. You're just passing through. You're in exile here. Adopt an exile's mindset. You're living in a land that is not your real nation. You're living outside of your true country. 
But your true country should always be on your mind, always on your heart. And while you live here as an exile, guess what? You're also an ambassador. You're an ambassador for your true home. How you live and act and treat others all reflect back on the king and the kingdom you belong to. So, set your mind to the king's business and don't be overly stressed about your own. Seek the advance of Christ's kingdom here and you'll actually be devoting your mind and your energy to what really matters most. Have you ever heard the saying, that person is so heavily minded, they're no earthly good? You ever heard that before? It's a catchy saying, but it's usually utterly untrue. The most heavenly minded people typically also do the most earthly good. Jesus, anyone? Right? Paul, we talked last week about William Wilberforce. You know, he was of no earthly good in Parliament until he became heavenly minded. Then he ended the slave trade. The more our minds are filled with heaven, the more we will reflect that heaven on earth. The more our imaginations are captured by the things above, the more we will naturally reshape things below according to the same image. So, let's have our imaginations captured by this increasingly. Our true home isn't here. Our true home isn't here yet. Therefore, Christian, set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on home. The more heavenly-minded you become, the more earthly good you will do. That's the third truth. Here's the fourth. The fourth is this. You have died with Christ to the things of this world. You have died with Christ to the things of this world. Verse 3. Four, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your real home isn't here, and your real life isn't here, because you've died. Baptism symbolized your unity with Christ in his resurrection, but also in his death. Becoming a Christian, we often say, begins with new life, but also becoming a Christian begins with a real death, your death, a death to your old self, an old way of life. As Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, whoever dies for my sake, will find life. Paul describes this reality in Galatians when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To become a Christian involves some real dying. Dying to our old desires. Dying to our old selfish self-rule. We've died to many things that once dominated our hearts and thoughts and our lives Similar to the Pevensies, remembering that we were kings and queens in Narnia, we are called to remember that we have died with Christ and that that death should impact how we live now. 
we remind ourselves we're dead to that. We're dead to that desire. We have died to that ambition. We are dead now to that way of life. Once this death captures our imaginations, it can become amazingly good news. In a world that is vying for our attention, it is refreshing to be able to say, no, I have died to that. No, I will not entertain that thought. No, I have died to needing to have it all my way and be in control. No, I won't believe the lie that God is withholding what is best for me. No, I have died to needing the praise and approval of others. I've died to that. If our imaginations can be captured by the extent of the death we have died with Christ, we'll be able to say to some of our darling sins, nope, sorry, I have died to you. I don't need you anymore. The old man did, that old, but that old man has been crucified with Christ and no longer lives. I have died. That's your identity. I have died. But in dying, I realize that my life doesn't end. It simply goes somewhere better. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Here's our fifth and final truth. Your real life is with Christ, who will return in glory. Your real life is with Christ. Paul says here that your real life isn't here. Your real life is now united and bound up in Christ's life. We've surrendered our lives, and they've been caught up in something greater. As the old hymn says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Our imaginations need to be captured by a fact that runs contrary to what our eyes see. Our real life isn't here. It isn't here and now. Our little drop of life has been swept up in the ocean of Christ's life that it may richer, fuller be. Our little spark of life has been caught up in Christ. So that in his sunshine's blaze, its day may brighter, fairer be. Our life isn't really here. Not life that is full and abundant. Life that is meant to be begins when the king returns. When Christ comes again. When all that was wrong with the world is undone. Strife. Cancer. War, sin, real life begins when all the sad things become untrue. And let me just remind you of an old illustration from several weeks ago. Do you remember the line illustration? Remember our line isn't like a true line. Our life is like a ray. It's a dot, 
It begins at a point, but then it stretches on infinitely. Our life is like a ray. It has a beginning point, and then it stretches out infinitely in one direction. On the ray that is our existence, the life we experience now is just a small point, is just a small dot. The life that is to come, our real life, is incalculably longer than this little dot that we're living right now. Far more life, far more adventures lie ahead than any we leave behind. That's why C.S. Lewis ends the Chronicles of Narnia and the adventures of the Pevensey kids this way. He says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Kids, get your parents to read the Chronicles of Narnia to you. Adults, do whatever it takes to reawaken your childlike, sanctified imagination and have it captivated by truths like this. You have died with Christ. You've been raised up with Christ. Your real life is with Christ. Heaven is your real home. Jesus is seated upon his throne. He sees you and intercedes for you always. Father, may you capture our hearts. May you capture our minds May you capture our imaginations this morning with your truth. Again, may all distraction be put aside. May the eyes of our hearts be fixed upon the Lord Jesus. Perhaps for the very first time, may we see him as the king who comes and pursues us. When we had nothing to offer, he offers himself freely and fully to us. We live before his face before his throne. May you capture our hearts, our minds with that, these glorious truths. And in doing so, may our lives be changed. May we live like who we really are. May we live out our new identity. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.